we want to start this episode with some trigger warnings for self-harm, eating disorders, and suicide. If you or anyone you know might be struggling, please look at the link in the description where we will have lots of resources to help. Stigma. Strength. Stigma. Strength. Stigma. Strength. Stigma. To strength. A podcast by the Charlie Willard Trust where we have honest conversations about young people's mental health. Hello and welcome back to Stigma to Strength. I'm Kyanne. I'm Eliza. Today we're joined by a very special guest. Ben West. Ben has channeled his own life experiences into becoming an active mental health campaigner. From being a best-selling author to shedding light on the need to change laws to help the mental health of school children, Ben's work is truly inspirational and we are delighted to be able to talk with him today. It's so great to have you here, Ben. We're absolutely delighted to hear what you have to say. And just to start off, how are you doing today? How's your week been? Yeah, busy week. Thanks for having me on on the podcast, guys. I'm very uh, very glad to be sitting down. It's a lovely room we've got here. Yeah, no, busy week. I think any, I was just saying before we started, like from Suicide Prevention Day back in, what is it, September, October time until Christmas is always absolutely packed in the mental health calendar. So yeah, busy week, but... But we do, I mean, lots of great work, lots of exciting things going on. So our podcast is Stigma to Strength, and we always start off asking each other about something we feel strong about this week, something stigmatised. You know, it, do, it can be trivial, it doesn't have to be something huge at the moment. But I'll start off and say something that I feel strong about this week is I've joined a running club. It's my uni running club, so shout out to my friend Paris who started it. And I never thought at uni I'd be doing a running club. I thought that was something you do when you're kind of 45. But I've loved it. It's great. I, um, I'm really enjoying it. It's some, I go with some people who I know, some people I don't. It's a 5K. It's very easy. Um, and so I'm really feeling strong about doing that. Ben, what's something you're feeling strong about this week? Something feeling strong about? Certainly not running. I haven't done, <laughs> run, haven't done a run this week. Um, I am feeling strong. I think I... I feel like I go in, it comes in ebbs and flows and sort of ups and downs of my job. And I don't know, this week's just everything seems to be going well. I had a really cool meeting yesterday about some jobs that are going on. I've got some really, like, you know, when sometimes you're just throwing yourself opportunities and it just, you know, it's facing doors and stuff closing yeah. and it makes you so demoralized. And anyway, this week, everything's that I've sort of gone to, everything sort of worked. I mean, that, that is sort of a massive touch wood moment, yeah. but, um, <laughs> but it's, it's sort of worked. And I don't know, my confidence feels, to, feels like it's up. Because I think you sort of realise actually you're you're good at what you do when stuff goes right and starts happening, yeah. um, and when you're obviously not having those opportunities to go through, you can sort of get into the point where you're like questioning what you're doing and all of this. But at the moment, this week and today, yeah. it's been uh, I feel very confident about what I do, and it gives you a lot more like respect for for what you say. And also, you know, listening to your lovely intro of me, it's sort of so nice to hear that because I guess when you're in this world and when you're getting on with the business of life, you sort of don't ever get the opportunity to sit back and think about everything and. And so that's very nice to hear. Thank you no, for that lovely intro. of course. Intro. Well, it it remi- it's good to be reminded how much yeah. amazing stuff you're doing. Because I feel like it's easy to, you know, get bogged down if there, if there are some things which aren't going well and your whole thing is campaigning. So obviously it's going <laughs> against yeah. what is going on at the moment. <laughs> I am. what's something you're feeling strong about this week? Um, I would say this week I'm feeling very strong about my ability to relax. I have recently really struggled to be able to actually just relax. And when I... I thought I was relaxing, but I spoke to my friend and she was like, are you still thinking about other things as well? Like, do you still have other stuff on your mind? And can you properly decompress kind of thing? So recently I've really started getting back into a routine has really helped for me because I've been out of a routine a lot. And I think I realize that when I don't have that, 
find it difficult to relax because it means that I don't have scheduled time when I'm supposed to be doing things that I may be on my to-do list or working or things like that. So I feel like I'm finally at a place where, you know, I have my fairy lights, I have my little lamp that's in the shape of a toaster. And when you turn it on, it's like the toast pops up. So it's- <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> but yeah, I think that I've really been focusing on that and it's really nice, especially around Christmas times. Let's talk about anything that's stigmatized. I'll kick off with, I think, going along with what my strength was with joining the running club. I think starting exercise and if you're wanting to do that for your mental health, feeling like you have to be really good at it and I know lots of people at the moment are running marathons and everything which is incredible um, and hats off to them but sometimes it feels like if you want running to be the thing which helps your mental health you have to be amazing at it otherwise that's a bit embarrassing and what's been so nice about the running club is we go at the slowest person's pace which is so nice and it's a conversational pace so you are chatting with friends you're talking about how your week's been and everything it's on a Sunday so it's great um, and I think it's really can be stigmatized that you need to be brilliant at sport to be doing that and actually you don't you can just be doing it for your mental health and that's really important ben is there something that you feel like stigmatized this week absolutely actually i was before you said that i was thinking pretty much exactly the same like i adore running for for my mental health i always have i've liked getting out well actually that's a lie i haven't always liked running but i sort of discovered running and realized i liked it based on that exactly that stigma of i didn't like running because i wasn't running fast enough or like pushing myself but actually I discovered running uh, there was a great book I read called Born to Run and basically goes into this whole thing about exactly that run at a pace where you can have a conversation and notice things around you and that's like how you should run um so I I really that I find that really good but I haven't run for a while and I've, I've put stuff on pause and it, it sort of feels like you're smashing I mean my strength right is that what, what you know you ask me how my week is it's going great yeah. but actually you start to get into a mindset of things going well means I don't have to focus so much on doing this stuff and, and looking after myself and you sort of like put that up aside for a second and I guess it's difficult isn't it because really the most important time to look after your mental health is when you're good and when you're doing okay because that's how you build habits so I think for me that's yeah, that's what's been stigmatized. Is this whole idea that, that that mental health support and doing things your mental health is something that you need to rely on when you're in a bad way? And actually, yeah. it feels it feels a bit odd to be like, mm, I, I need to go and speak speak to my counselor or go for a run or go and do something now when everything seems to be going well. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's sort of difficult because you sort of reflect now and you're like, I'm doing. I know I'm going to regret this because yeah. you're going to reach the end or something's going to happen, and I've I've then got to try and motivate myself to build a healthy habit again. So. Anyway, that's I'm um, the same with you. And you see all these people running marathons and ultra marathons and all this, and you're like, God, absolutely not. And it feels like it's not your it's not your sport because you're like, I'm not running a marathon. But then it's I don't know. I absolutely adore running, and I think everyone needs to to change their relationship with it and find what sort of running works for them. Yeah. Well, um, so often running is used like as a punishment at school, and no wonder kind of so many people don't like it cuz it's like if you've been talking, like I used to always have this, I would be like standing there chatting with my friends and they'd be like you too. Like now you've got to run around the pitch and everyone would stare at you while you're running quite slowly, um which obviously is going to put you off whereas now that I'm 21 I don't have to be doing that, which is quite nice. <laughs> Kyan, what do you think is stigmatized for you this week? I would say kind of a it's more specifically to do with Christmas, but sort of eating around Christmas because I think that it's sort of branded as maybe one of the most indulgent times of the year which I think is it's nice but it's kind of like 
people act as if it's it's only allowed at Christmas almost like you have to indulge whilst you can because once Christmas is over and it gets to the new year then it's like you have to go back to uh, maybe restricting yourself like to levels that might not be healthy and I think that obviously everything is good in moderation but I think that sometimes there's too much focus on like oh you can you can only really indulge yourself in this one window of time otherwise it's not well deserved kind of thing I think that's such an important thing and like people like worry so much about you know they're all it's especially all the adverts and everything you see it's like you can now have like this huge meal and it can you can celebrate and this is perfect and then you get all of that and then a week later you'll get all of the adverts about new year's resolutions and what you should and shouldn't be eating and all of that and it's that can be so overwhelming whether or not you struggle with eating disorders or not it's difficult for everyone and that leads on in a way quite nicely to um, our topic. So obviously, Ben, you've done so much for campaigning about mental health and we want to kind of focus specifically on talking about male body image. And this is a topic which may seem weird that it's two girls speaking to you about this, but we think it's really important as you know, speaking to our friends, our girls and our guys, we feel like for some of the boys, it's harder to speak about how they're feeling because, you know, no, there's quite a lot of body positive movement around women and we, it, which is amazing and incredible and should keep going um but looking at kind of influences and people who are doing that and mental health campaigners there's less for men and also I know that I speak with my girls about oh I'm feeling a bit not great about how I look or like this or isn't it great not great about the diet culture and stuff like that and that's a conversation that is happening amongst the girls like before you're getting ready for a night out and things like that whereas speaking to any of my guy friends they're like never would I like say to a friend or I'm not really feeling great about how I look at the moment so we really want to talk to you about that today so I guess a first sort of thought is why do you think it's so important to focus on male body image and why do you think that's a conversation that we need to be having yeah I I think so firstly what you were saying Eliza about um the fact that you've got such a massive body positivity movement with women and that, that women talk about it. And obviously that doesn't mean that the, the whole thing's solved, but it, it, I sort of look at that as a man and I, I'm, a part of me feels very jealous of that, that the progress that's been made. And, you know, you open Instagram and, and there's some amazing, amazing role models out there. We don't really have that with men i think we're moving towards a place where more people are being a little bit more open but you're you know you start you touch search um fitness men fit male fitness and male body in google or instagram and it comes up with and i have done because i did a, did a, a project on it and it comes up with people in the gym absolutely ripped just like muscles bulging everywhere enormous guys and i'm like you walk down the high street and tell me how many people you see that look like that yeah, um, zero. <laughs> exactly you type in man into google or um or instagram that's what comes up but you don't see people like that in the real world um and i'm sure that there's people and i know people that do that for a living and are bodybuilders and do all of that but but they're not <laughs> they're not there's not a lot of them right and and it's it's weird because it's sort of prying preying on this real vulnerability that exists in men to be strong and to be stoic and to be better and to be the breadwinner and to be better than other people um, and we know that there's real real bad stuff that goes on because of those those exact issues and i notice it all the time in my work 
because I think in historically and stereotypically, eating disorders are seen as a, a female um, illness. Mm-hmm. And whilst it's true that females are massively overrepresented in the number of people in the, the people that do struggle with eating disorders, there is a significant of men that do struggle with that. But I think what's happened is this hustle culture and this gym culture and this fitness culture has turned what is actually quite damaging rhetorics into something that is normal. And I think it's scary. And, you know, I'm, I'm certainly... I've grown up feeling like I wanted to be more and stronger and wanting to fit into into this this mold and, and you know you turn on the TV and you've got people dancing around on a on an island looking for love uh, that yeah. look like that they've or they have been working out for about four months to go onto yeah. that TV show and it's just it, it's impossible for it not to infiltrate your mindset and and really have an impact on you as a man and I just don't think it's talked about enough in terms of the male perspective of this and then we can go into all, all sorts of things and I, I do think it comes very much it's very much linked to this whole stoicism piece that men need to be strong and it's, it's linked directly to this idea that they don't talk so you've got the perfect storm of men that feel insecure as a, as a like generally that don't want to talk because they want to be strong so they want to look a certain way but they're feeling bad about not looking a certain way but they don't want to talk because they want to be strong and it's this vicious cycle definitely and I think like as you're saying then, like when you Googled about what does a man look like, I think it's so true that it's this kind of massive gym, like guy who goes to the gym all the time. And either you're like, well, I'm at uni or I'm at school or I've got a job. I can't be doing that. But you forget that when you see that image for two seconds on your phone, you forget, hang on, the people on Love Island, they, that is what they're like. They're working to look like that because that's what their job is. Whereas we're not, our jobs are different. Stigma to strength. strength, a Charlie Waller podcast. You can see how, like, with the for women more, there are kind of there's been an acceptance of different body types, and it's more sort of like there's this one body type. I mean, you might think differently. I don't know, but it feels like as a woman, it's often this one body type of kind of tall, dark, handsome, like very well built is the kind of that's the option for men or you're not stereotypically beautiful. I think that change to there being lots of different types of beauty for men hasn't really come yet. Yeah, absolutely. You're so right. I think, you know, you think about what... If I if I sort of go down through the list of what I think men feel insecure about in terms of their own appearance, you've got to... We start from the top and go down. Um, real big insecurity is hair, hairline, hair loss, and obviously, which is ridiculous because it happens to most men. Yeah. In fact, I think it's actually like 99% of men experience um, some sort of baldness, right? That's sort of built into our genetics. A massive insecurity for men. Actually, strangely, is, and this is based on talking to someone that works with men on positive body issues. Nose, noses, a lot of men don't like their nose. Teeth. And it's all these areas that people are really, really start transfix on. And that's why we have so much like work done. I mean, their hair transplant, teeth and nose is like a massive industry around the world yeah. because so many people are so insecure about it. And then you go down sort of at a shoulder level and you've got this whole idea that you have to have broad shoulders and you're big. And you want to be the upside down triangle that everyone tells you, right? And then you go further down, it's all like... Do you have big feet, small feet, and all of this? So it's it's almost like every at every moment or part of the body, there's some sort of narrative that says this is what the perfect one looks like. You just look around; no one looks the same. It's, it's really sad to me that so many people want to look the same, and you've got these like this idea that there is this perfect model of who you need to be and what you need to be, and that, and if you're not that, then you're not good enough. And and obviously, you know, those 
really manifest in some really, really dark, dangerous illnesses. And, you know, I've worked with people that have had BDD and, and, and men that have gone in and had anorexia, bulimia, and all sorts of, of awful issues because of that. So, so yeah, I mean, it's really, it's really difficult. But you're right, there are so many different types of, of body. Um, you don't, and, and to be attractive and handsome, you don't have to have dark hair. You don't have, you don't have to have perfect teeth. You don't yeah. have to be an upside down triangle. <laughs> I mean, and also, you know what I find really weird? Because I was talking to my girlfriend about this this morning, about how like body attitudes and trends change over time. I'm like, you take all of these stereotypical, beautiful, amazing people that we've got in the, on the planet now, right? So you take the cast of Love Island, for example, yeah. that's often seen as like ultra fit, right? And you put them in the Tudor times, right? None of them are attractive, yeah, right? And none of them are attractive. You've got, you take some you take like a, a fit man now and you put him back next to Henry VIII Henry VIII would be voted 10 out of 10 right yeah. you know because that sort of seems attractive and it's just it seems so funny that we we dictate like our own insecurities based on change in time of what people value and it's and when actually what we really value and when you meet people that are in this space that actually see past all of these very surface level stuff you realize actually being a nice person being funny being kind all of that means so much more than whether you have hair on your head or not right and 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 that's that's what makes me really sad and what made me really sad doing this work around it was so many people really lost a huge amount of their life to an illness based on the fact that they were worried about some part of their body that actually, in reality, probably wouldn't have, no one else probably would have seen it. Um, and it was just, it just ruminated out of this trend to suddenly have perfect hair or perfect, yeah. the perfect waistline, which, which seems absolutely ridiculous. It does make me a little bit angry because, you know, these are really lovely people that I've worked with and they just didn't deserve to go through the pain that they went through. And you almost want to just go back in time and just give them a big hug and be like, you've really you i don't see who you see but that i guess is the nature of these illnesses is you you don't see who everyone else sees and and that takes a long time of sort of really damaging thoughts going around your head which these ridiculous trends start don't help. exactly and like i think going along that with one thing that i found which has been one of the most helpful things for me with kind of feeling confident about your body is Chessie King, I don't know if you've yeah. heard of her, she's yeah. great. She said that kind of, what are people gonna remember? Like at, like at your funeral or when you're older and you don't look the same, what are people gonna remember? They're gonna remember how, they, how you made them feel. Like, were you funny? Were you nice? Were you kind? They don't care what color your hair you have and all of that. Like, that's what people remember from you. And I was like, actually, that's so true. Like when I see a friend and I leave that, I'm thinking, whoa, that was so great. I had such a giggle with them, not, oh, I thought she looked a bit, like she didn't look that good or like, oh, she wasn't that tanned or, you know, I don't think that. And actually when you, if you can try, like obviously not when you're really struggling with like an eating disorder or something, it's, it's that's different. But at, at the kind of like body positivity level, if you're just feeling a bit low self-esteem, I think remembering something like that is really important. And so kind of along the lines of that, you know, we're young, we're probably all using social media and it's quite hard to, get off that and people say like I'm sh I've had older people say to me like okay if you're going on TikTok and it's making you feel rubbish then just delete it and it's not as easy as that like all of our friends are on social media and it can be positive and you use Instagram lots and I love seeing everything that you're posting what advice would you give to kind of young people of how to counteract the kind of negative side of social media no it's true I think we talk about well let's face it body image has has just it's the nuclear bomb of, of 
body dysmorphia and, and body image, right? It's awful for our mental health. We're not going to see a world in the near future where social media doesn't exist. So I think people need to start changing their relationship with social media. And I've got a rule. I'll only follow people that entertain me, educate me or inspire me. I, like, I will not follow anyone that I don't think that. And if they start doing stuff that I think is a bit weird, then they, they get the chop, right? They're off. I think you need to be really strict about that. Obviously, it's a little bit different with how things are changing because obviously you have for you pages where you can't control it. But I think you can you can still set filters. And I know it feels a bit weird setting a filter because it feels like you're, it's like how a child would be treated is so like intervention filters. But what ban words, do it all that. It's, it's so important and actually, you know, it's going to make your experience so much better. If you've got certain triggers around certain things, you can filter them out so you don't see them. Um, obviously, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook aren't doing enough to protect people that are vulnerable, but there are tools if you lose, use them okay, then you can try and limit what you see. I'm a massive advocate for um, staying off social media at weekends and having fire breaks. So I don't go, I, well, I sometimes do, but I try and, because obviously it's my job, it's a diff- difficult um difficult relationship and I set about a year ago I was just like well no one no one goes to the office on Saturday and Sunday so I'm just not going to go on social media on Saturday and Sunday and that's been that's been really amazing actually because it sort of redefined my relationship with it it's sort of a tool that I use and sometimes occasionally go on to see what people are doing but it's not an entertainment so it's sort of like it's there to use for work and use for communicating people but I sort of have a life that's separate to it and I I like things that aren't to do with it the challenge of the social media to not get absorbed by it but I want to just caveat all of that by saying social media companies employ psychologists and people that know how the brain works okay if anyone is on if you're on your phone right now just go onto a social media app and scroll along the page what does it remind you of I was I was in Vegas about three weeks ago and it's a slot machine it's a never-ending spinning wheel Right, and a lot of the tactics that social media companies use are the same as the tactics that uh, gambling companies use, and it's it's psychologically addictive. Yeah, it's designed like that, um, and and so y- when you understand that, and you understand that you are the product for these companies, and you're being advertised to for their benefit, you are you're they want you on that platform as much as possible because you are their product. So I'd have a little bit of compassion with yourself if you are being drawn in and set those boundaries and understand the relationship that that platform has with you. You can set timers on it to remind you you've been on it for an hour. That's, that's I think, a fantastic thing to have because everyone falls down to a pit and you start on a video about a cat and then you end up like, oh, it's a it's a ball bouncing around a screen. So I set, well, get those timers up, but it is, it's very scary because it is one of the most powerful industries in the world and it is designed to keep people people's eyes on it as much of the time as possible and it's having a massive impact i mean obviously we can talk about body image and 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 all this and and obviously the the issues that it that brings up but you know we've got a whole generation that is really struggling with their attention span you know we've got these tools that zap our dopamine pathways and and create real issues with creating dopamine outside of spinning the wheel let's see what we find so i think social media needs to be seen for what it is and it's a psychologically addictive platform that is selling you to advertisers. And if you understand that, you can try and build a relationship around it. Sure, you have to be on it. I think if you're not on social media, you are at a disadvantage socially. Mm-hmm. Like that's what I've found with people I know. But try and understand what it's doing to you and try and understand the relationship the, ad- the, the platforms have with you and then try and reciprocate that back and have it at an arm's length. And have fire breaks because it's a good way of testing your relationship with them. If you can go for a Saturday and Sunday without opening Instagram, 
then I'd say you've got a pretty good relationship with them. If you can't, then then it maybe is time to sort of put those measures in and those reminders and, and maybe even delete the app for a week, right? Start policing yourself with them. Yeah, and it gives you a bit of a reality check if you kind of feel like I even know on my phone where the apps are. And even if I've deleted that app and been like, right, I want to delete it. I can f- like feel my thumb going towards that bit where it was before, which is like terrifying. And I think when you kind of, like you're saying, you realize this is what's going on and you're like, hey, how can I counteract that? And, you know, it's not kind of saying I'm never allowed to have any social media, but it does then. And then you once you've realized that you're like, whoa, this is quite terrifying how much they can filter stuff towards us and everything. And then you become, I think, less keen to be on it anyway. Yeah, 100%. I think that there something has happened a lot with like uh, instant gratification. I feel like the society we live in today, it's become so normalized that all of this entertainment and whatnot, it's like you're going to get it immediately. And I feel like, like you said, that can be very damaging in terms of the dopamine receptors because it's like you're constantly craving this just instant gratification, but you can't always have it. And I think that that can be very difficult. But speaking of sort of delayed gratification, there's a lot of emphasis on um, mobile image and exercising and eating healthy. And obviously that's not something that happens immediately and it can be sort of an end goal. How do you think that men can get a healthy balance between eating healthy and exercising? Because some people are so um, can be so fixated with that instant gratification that it can actually become unhealthy. I completely agree. This is such an important point, particularly for men, right? Everyone, you have conversations occasionally with people and you'll see, again, on Instagram, you know, there's a podcast about someone saying that gym and going to the gym has like helped their mental health. And I'm sure it does. For a lot of people out there, exercise is an amazing tool for helping your mental health, helping you feel healthier and better. It releases dopamine, it releases endorphins, it releases norepinephrine, which is a stress bus that makes you feel great for most of us, right? When you've limped home from a run. And it does, it does work. I think the problems come when it goes a little bit too far. The problems come when people lie about why they're doing it. A lot of people use the gym to feel good, but don't ask them what about the gym is making them feel good. So if you're going to the gym because you you want to come out of the gym feeling better and happier and less stressed, then great, crack on, that's perfect. But if you come out of the gym injured, feeling worse, feeling like you haven't achieved your goal or feeling any way self-critical, then that's not good, right? And what I mean by that is I think actually we've got a real issue, especially with men, with, with what's called muscle dysmorphia, which is actually people that have an illness in terms of how they view their muscles and their progress. Um, Going to the gym should be a tool for happiness and fitness, and that should be fun. Um, I'm a massive advocate of exercise without metrics. So, you know, every time, every, especially around this year at Christmas, everyone's trying to sell you fitness trackers and on all of this. I try to run without a watch. I don't look at calories. I don't look at my time. I don't look at my distance. I run with a watch sometimes because I want to run somewhere long and I need a map. And I don't <laughs> have to keep getting my phone out. But I try and ignore the time. And, and actually, ironically, what I find is I run faster when I'm not looking at a watch and tracking it. Um, and I find it easier. But I'm a massive advocate, as I said at the start, of running to a conversational speed. Mm-hmm. Running to be able to s- notice things and see like birds flying around and oh that's a nice type of grass or something <laughs> ridiculous right and it's the same exactly the same with the gym if you can go to the gym and pick up a weight and not look at what's on it and just sort of lift it and and feel good about the fact that you're lifting a weight and put it down and not know what you've just done that's really healthy but it's this constant tracking 
and obviously there'll be people here that, that have a sort of visceral response to this and, and really defensive. And I don't want to attack going to the gym at all because I like it. I find it really helpful. I've got friends that it's quite literally saved, right? Um, uh, but and, and goals and cracking goals and achieving goals can be really healthy and really good for us. And we all need to achieve goals. But I think there's a real fine line between wanting to work out because it makes you feel good and because you want to be happy and because you want to be impressed by what your body can do and wanting to work out so you can look good because it's tackling an insecurity that you have that you potentially haven't addressed. And it's a real fine line. And unfortunately, we do see so many men develop muscle dysmorphia, body dysmorphia, anorexia, um, eating disorders. And you know these are some killer illnesses. Anorexia, I mean, it's the biggest killer of, of any mental illness, yeah. both from suicide and, and other things. It's, it's awful. Um, and we're playing with fire. And I, so I would encourage anyone that does exercise for their mental health to just keep a, a tracker on, <laughs> ironically, your tracking. Just understand, like, if you're running, if you're feeling deflated about the fact that you haven't hit a 25-minute 5K, why is that? Um, I'm a massive believer. If you go to exercise, you should f- come back feeling better. And if you're coming back feeling worse, you've done something wrong. So I'd say that's a really big one for me. I think as well, it goes to, well, a few things. First of all, like uh, the other day, Eliza and I were talking and we were saying how we both, back when we were in secondary school, we went to all girls schools and we were saying how we feel like there was a lot more sort of body positivity then, and especially in terms of exercising and eating. We were encouraged by teachers, by our peers to think you know everyone is beautiful everyone has this but I was thinking about like I was very close to this all boys school and those conversations were not happening at all and I was speaking to Eliza and she said a similar thing and I think it feeds into like um there's a term that keeps being thrown around a lot recently so like the male gaze but I feel like we don't talk about the the flip side the female case which is I think lots of men it's sort of like what you were saying about those teenagers think and it's not even just what they think I was going to say that men think that women have this idea of what a man should be and then there's this like intense pressure in terms of dating especially as you're growing up however I do think to some extent societally that is an issue it's not just what men think because as we said earlier, it is a thing that if you go on Love Island and you ask um, all the girls around the fire pit, what's your type? They're, <laughs> they're all going to say tall, dark and handsome. I, I completely agree. I think on female body image, right, men have a lot of work to do to change how we teach in schools about that and how we talk about women. And, and so I think, but it, you know, just in that we have to take responsibility for how we talk about that and try and change that. I do think there is... There is the flip side where, you know, we can't just have this godlike obsession with tall, dark and handsome. And well, I think it's systemic of a society that's that's quite surface level in a lot of the ways that we th- look at people, whether it's celebrities, TV presenters or influencers or friends or people that we come into contact with. It's it, We live in quite a surface level society. And I know from men I've spoken to about this that do really, really struggle with this a lot of it's based on what they think is appealing to women and feel very alienated when it's when they're you know got don't have tall dark and handsome right and they're not like that and they feel very alienated and so i think all around we need to start understanding why we have this focus on it and 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 it just ingrains in your mind this image of what is a perfect life 
And I guess that's another thing to bring social media into is like this idea that there's this perfect fairy tale life that everyone needs to chase. When actually, again, this whole high street thing, walk down the high street, no one looks like it. Yeah. No one talks like it. Everyone's different. Everyone's got different jobs. Everyone's got different interests. And that's amazing. And I think what's what would be so good is if we would just break free from this surface level nonsense that we live in and actually start getting to know people and, and, and for dating to, ev- to evolve. Like, I mean, the biggest players in dating over the last decade have been swiping apps where you see a photo of someone and you either like them or you don't. And it's like, how sad is it that that's the, the culture we've created where we literally will decide potentially on our life partner based on whether their face looks good in their face photo. And unfortunately, with so much pressure on how we look, of course, we're all going to feel really insecure about it because not all of us are Zac Efron. And even if you've got Zac Efron sitting here, he'd probably feel pretty bad about something, right? And it's bizarre. We're all unhappy, and no one seems to want to change that we're, that we're just creating ourselves, making ourselves unhappy. And I can sit here, and I don't know what the solution is, because it's so ingrained in society that it, finding a solution would be so hard. But all we can really do is talk about it openly, talk about it as men openly, and, and hope that you know both men and female body positivity movements will continue and hopefully more people will feel seen and represented um, and we'll get to a point where people look back and go I can't believe people decided who to date based on their face. No I think it goes back to kind of the Chessy King thing that you were saying about people's personalities and how people make you feel because I think the problem is not just looking at people and determining whether you think they're attractive or not I think it goes beyond that where it's like you look at someone and depending on whether you think they're attractive you make up a whole story in your head of what their personality is like as well so then you start thinking oh this person is like for example it could be someone that's tall dark and handsome in the picture and you might start thinking oh I can imagine that he would be really nice and etc etc and you're building up this story because it fits with what you think and that is it's completely wrong and I think that is what mainly does a disservice as well because it's not just it's not just like you're looking at the surface level you're making assumptions based on the surface level about a person's whole character and that can be so damaging as well stigma to strength so this is more of a kind of taking out to the bigger picture a bit so according to the priory it's 1.25 and 3.4 million people in the uk having eating disorder Um, which is a horrible statistic. But looking at this, they say that only 25% of them are men. And we, I don't know, we're kind of wondering, do you think that is because lots of men don't realise that they have an eating disorder and therefore then don't seek the help and aren't then registered as, as, like, you know, on that statistic? Yeah, it's a difficult one because I don't want to trivialise eating disorders because... You know, we can say that it's maybe because people don't report it as much, but then you see someone that has severe anorexia and it's you don't have to report it. So I don't I don't know because I do look at the statistics when they do say this about, you know, how many people have a mental health disorder. And I do think that they're so skewed, especially when you're talking like depression, anxiety. I think a lot of men don't come forward. Certain there's a huge amount of men that live are living with this sort of stuff and don't come forward and actually seek support or tell anyone. There's definitely out there. I think maybe the problem is we've sort of created a lot of these symptoms as normal. And so people will happily tick along feeling unhappy and normal um, and then not develop further because that would 
you know, that people would notice that, but sort of be okay in a sort of middle ground and where they're sort of ticking along and no one's really noticing they're unwell, but they're sort of satisfying their illness and getting along. I don't know. It is it is really difficult. The, I think with stats, you've always got to sort of take them with a bit of a pinch of salt, especially when it comes to something requiring people to be open. But also, most men, if we went outside now, would have no idea what body dysmorphia is and would have no idea that knowing how many calories you have in a day is a massive risk factor for quite a significant illness. Like, I think there's a massive lack of education that, that actually men would probably not know. And that's like that's down to an education piece. So, yeah, I think, look, 25% of whatever, 3 million is still quite a lot of people. I do think there's probably more than that. But I think it's just, it's worth noting. And uh, there's an amazing, is it Jenny Langley wrote a book called Boys Get Anorexia Too. I think it's such a brilliant moment now to be like, oh yeah, you know, we've spoken about the more common mental illnesses, but actually all these periphery ones that aren't talked about as much, they're still really bad and they still really affect men and they affect men in a way that's different to women but is still massively impactful and so that's why these conversations are good. I think it is yeah it is important to be having like you say about that book because sometimes you know if you're a guy and you're struggling with an eating disorder and there's no kind of podcast or resources or help to listen to someone who's had that and got better like I think that's really hard because you're kind of like am I the only person, which obviously is a huge issue with mental illness anyway, that you think you're the only person who's ever felt like this. But I think that's why, you know, we're having this conversation today and talking about male body image because lots of men will be suffering, whether they've realised it or not, you know, whether, as we're talking about with exercise, whether they realise that they might not reflect after they've gone to the gym and realise they don't actually feel great after it, whether they've realised it or not, knowing that there are other people who are feeling the same is a little bit of reassurance. Yeah, absolutely. And also, you know, this all feeds back into depression, anxiety, and suicide, right? And we do know that male suicide rate is, is really, really high, and it, that's that's awful. Um, and, and I think what happens with men is we sort of suppress so much and paint over the cracks a little bit and pretend, oh, I'm going to the gym, I'm doing it for my mental health, or, uh, you know, I, I don't feel very secure about my appearance, but, well, who does, right? And sort of get through life. And then... You know, if you're lucky, nothing really bad happens that triggers anything worse and you sort of just bubble along and, and small things will bring you happiness and, and, and you'll sort of never get below that level of where you are. But you know, what I find in, with people that I've seen sort of really have a sudden problem um, is that then something will happen in your life that makes things worse and then you really are drowning at that point. Because I always wonder with this conversation why so many people that I speak to that have a man in their life die from suicide will say no one saw it coming when we know full well that actually most suicides are because of a mental illness, underlying, underlying mental health or, or diagnosed mental illness. So clearly there was something going on, but just everyone seems to say it. And I'm, I'm trying to, I think it's because we sort of normalise symptoms of this to an extent where people either don't think it's a problem so they're so scared of going to reach support that they don't and then it all gets too much once and then the only way out is suicide because no one knows and it's been such a long time and they don't have any other options and it is it's really sad and I think actually sort of like to move on from just talking about the symptoms like to get help I I speak to so many people where and I've spoken to GPs and worked with GPs and they're like so many people particularly men will book in for a GP appointment saying, oh, I don't know, they've got a lump on their leg or like they've got pain in their shoulder and will come in and then they'll sort of 
uh, get to the end of the appointment and go, oh, I don't, like, I don't feel great. I don't know what it's about. And they'll use, they're so, they're so nervous of booking the appointment and saying, I'm really struggling with my mental health or I think I've got depression, that they'll pretend that they've got something else. And then only when they're in the comfort of the surgery room will they suddenly unpack it all. And I really think that's actually quite sad that we, we are so nervous of doing that. And even I, as I sit here now, if I had something really bad happening, would I be prepared to pick up the phone to a GP and say, I think I've got depression, I'm not really not well, can I book an appointment? I'm not sure I would. I think I'd book under something else. I think a lot of men, especially if you're listening to this new Ironman, I'm pretty sure most people I know would book for something else. And, you know, if that's how you get through the door, that's how you get through the door. But it's symptomatic of real issue with how comfortable people are talking about it. And look, we all, we all struggle with this. We all struggle with body image. We all struggle with moments and periods where we feel low and we'll go through breakups and we'll go through messy things and grief and trauma and all sorts of messy things that happen in life and it doesn't make us different it makes us the same so we really need to just break down those barriers and start talking about it mm-hmm. and talk to your mates about it like if you're a man you know someone that's injuring themselves in the gym be like are you okay do you like do you need us to get anyone or do you need to chat because they're you know well the, the problem is two ways right it's people ignoring the symptoms themselves and it's people around them ignoring them as well um and that's not to say there's blame in suicide but you know we can all improve how we look at this and protect the people around us of course i mean i think that it's very cyclical sort of thing like when you develop a sort of attitude towards it like if you're saying you know it's something that we're not going to talk about it becomes a habit like i know for me my dad and my dad's side of the family were always very much like we're not going to talk about our mental health and i feel like interestingly enough to some extent I do relate to a lot of what you've said but that's because of that cyclical attitude that kind of was instilled in me of like it wasn't really a thing to crying wasn't really a thing you know talking about your mental health wasn't a thing and even what you were saying about going to the GP under something else I mean when I went um and I kind of started finally talking about everything yeah it was not intentional at all I feel like things like this can be very damaging and it's sort of I've gotten to a point now where I'm kind of unlearning that but I think it's like like I know for example even lots of the other men in my life like my friends similar thing especially in like the community where I live you just don't talk about it and it's interesting because it's like it, it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman you don't talk about your mental health and it's like you don't have mental health issues you it's because you're on your phone too much or it's because you don't do enough enough exercise kind of thing so I think that it's it's very uh, interesting and for me it's like my mum is a therapist so it's like kind of double-edged sword she's become a lot more like uh, she's very vocal about it and talking about it and I think that is very important because lots of people will say things in a flippant way like you said people will go and they will say oh my shoulder hurts or something like that and then they'll say they're not feeling great and I think sometimes as well the GPs can talk about it in a very clinical way I remember once I was talking to my mum and I told her something and in my mind it wasn't a big deal and she was like that is a big deal sometimes you don't even know that you need to do it kind of thing because you didn't even think it was that big of a deal in the first place because of all of the stigma um so yeah I really relate to that what I find frustrating a lot of the time is this big thing about talking and and how you know certain places have put a lot of money into marketing campaigns around just talk or like talk about it and yeah like absolutely talking is 
the, I mean, it's so, so important that everyone talks about their mental health because it really is massively impactful and really, really can help. But it trivializes something that's really difficult. And actually, for a lot of people, especially men, because it's something that we're not used to at all, talking about our emotions has so many barriers. Firstly, because actually, I don't know if I can name the emotions I'm feeling. Like Most of us don't actually know what they are, so it's quite confusing. So how on earth are you meant to talk to someone about it? And then also, admitting to someone else that there's something going on is sort of admitting that you don't have control of it anymore. And that's terrifying because it's taking something that, like you said, you might think is pretty like, oh yeah, I just haven't felt anything in three weeks or feel pretty numb at the moment. And then suddenly someone else is like, oh no, that's, do you want to go, like, let's go and do something about that. And it beca- it sort of takes it away from you and your control and it makes it into something that's someone else is now involved in and you lose that element of control. And look, people don't want to have to go to hospital. People don't want to have to go to the GP. People don't want to be ill. People don't want to admit the defeat or admit that they need help. And it's a massive hurdle. And so when we say talk about things, I don't think we give enough credit to people that, that do because they've overcome the first, the fact of articulating something that, <laughs> especially as men, we're not taught how to articulate at all. Um, and then actually admitted that they need someone else to help them with it. And if anyone's seen a dad or a man try and put up shelves, they'll know how how difficult it is for men to ask for help with even the most trivial thing, (laughs) right? I mean, you go to Ikea and you come back and you've got a table with legs that are like sticking out either way and they will not ask for help. And, And you go to, you know, I think as a man now, like I go to like a mechanic's. Um, to get my car MOT'd and there's a real feeling of unworthiness to be there or you go and you chat to a builder and they want you know you've got the plumber around and they're like can I have a tea and I'm like really concentrating on making a really good tea because it makes you feel unworthy or unmanly it's really really powerful these feelings that we have and it's the same feelings that make people feel incredibly unable to ask for help because we want to be able to make the table on our own yeah. <laughs> and we want to be able to put together the the t- chest of drawers on our own and not need help because we're men and we can build things um and it, it does extend into this real inability to ever lose control lose control and give it to someone else when actually the only way you're actually going to feel better or even feel something is by just letting someone else come in and guide you through it and give you a bit of advice because we're not the experts um, in everything, and we sometimes do need to rely on someone else. And actually, just following on that, just while I'm on a bit of a ramble, they, um, I stand by, I think, one of the most, the best things that you can do for someone that is obviously struggling is offer to book a GP appointment for them or get in touch with a psychologist or a therapist for them. Because if you, I d- and a lot of people ask me this, like, I'm, str- I'm worried about someone, like, what's, well, how can I help? I think, firstly, you've got to remain friends with them and, like, be the friend to them and remain, like, what you are to them. But I, I stand by, I think, one of the most powerful things you can do is offer to call the GP on their behalf or book a therapist on their behalf because that is an enormous barrier. And once you're over that hurdle and you're in the room, as we know from talking to GPs, then it comes out. And or once you're in that at that appointment with the therapist, then it comes out and they have that permission. Um, but phoning and booking is really, really, really daunting and a massive barrier. So I'd stand by, I think, for anyone that wants to help or is worried about someone in the gym or worried about someone's eating, like just having the conversation, letting them tell you that there's something going on, and then being like, if you, if you ever want me to like book an appointment or anything, or like come with you, um, I'm happy to come and do that. I think it's really, really a powerful thing to do. Yeah, and then they know they're not alone. They're not yeah. tackling and this. Like, yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, it's fine. Yeah, it's very normal. It's <laughs> yeah. okay, and you're going to get better as well. 
do you think like that there is like going back to kind of talking and opening up the conversation do you think there is stuff that like as women or if you're a man and you are feeling more confident um about talking about your mental health or body image are there ways that like we can start the conversation like I know that sometimes I have it like it's easier to go on a walk with someone because you're not sitting like directly it doesn't feel like an interview I know that's ironic now (laughs) um but like or you might be in the car and stuff like do you have any advice to kind of get that initial conversation going yeah it's difficult it's really difficult because often so my my advice for anyone who's worried about someone and they want to start a conversation I'd have two pieces of advice I think I might come up with a third I don't know what I'm talking um two pieces of advice my first is um always offer something first so no one no one's going to open up their heart and soul to you if they don't feel safe and the best way of making someone feel safe is offering your heart and soul to them first and so I've always taken the approach of even if it's something really mundane right so let's let's say I'm worried about I'm worried about my friend and I'm like let's go for a walk and I'll start, so we'll have a little classic small chat of like, how's the dog or whatever, you know. And then, you know, if you really want to move that conversation on, when he, when they ask you like how your week's been, just be open about something bad's happened. Um, and change, to sort of start to introduce the fact that, oh, we're having a bit of a deeper conversation. So I might say, oh, yeah, really struggling with work. A couple of things fell through. I'm like really just so stressed and like panicked about like what I'm doing and I'm just really like struggling with all of that bam you've got that vulnerability there so we've now set the tone for the conversation and then my th- I just think you've got to ask um I call it a cup of tea one two three so I think tea is like honesty serum like it's mm. so get a mug in someone's hand and they'll tend to spill more than you know more than usual and then one two three count to three and just say it rope the plaster off so it's one two three like what I've noticed you're not well at the moment like what's going on or, um, you know, you haven't been wanting to come out with us recently. Is everything okay? And if you, that still doesn't work, another amazing phrase for deepening the conversation is, is there anything you'd like to get off your chest? And that's especially good, I think, for like someone at work that comes up to you or sits with you in an office and, and takes you to one side and goes, is there anything you want to get off your chest? What brilliant opportunity to just vent. Yeah. Um, and it usually just starts as a vent and then it can go somewhere deeper. But those are some ways of like starting it. But I just think, no one's going to tell you something bad's happened without you setting the tone and making it safe. And then trumping all of those is make sure it's in somewhere appropriate. So many people, especially when you do work with companies, will be like, I've tried talking to people, but no one seems to open up. And they're in the middle of like hot desking and it's yeah. like 20 people there. <laughs> and you're like, no, find somewhere safe. And it's the same with like a cafe. Like, don't bring someone to a cafe and be like, so, you know, how are you dealing with the loss of your friend? Like all this, it's... It's you need to find an appropriate environment to go for a walk where it's not a busy park, somewhere where people feel safe, where they're not being overheard. And so it's somewhere private and somewhere maybe familiar with them rather than somewhere new. Yeah, I think that it can be very easy to get the tone wrong um, and to just kind of launch into conversation, which is it's not helpful at all. Like you were saying, you kind of have to ease into the conversation, especially if we're saying that you know men struggle to talk about these things then already it's like we can't just begin i guess looking again at the bigger picture we've spoken a lot about how we can make changes as individuals and how we can be better at having these conversations but do you think that there's more that society could do in parts of education or the government or even the nhs that they can do to reduce the stigma and support men who are struggling with their body image oh yeah absolutely i mean 
with schools you could talk about for years um, <laughs> because there's so much that needs to be done to education. I think first and foremost, just to, to get it straight out, is we need funding for eating disorder treatment and we need funding for beds and eating disorder treatments. It is appalling how little training that emergency doctors, ambulance service, um, police, doctors in general, nurses have in terms of eating disorders. Uh, you'd, you'd be surprised the stories of people that go to hospital with an eating disorder and the doctor doesn't know what they're doing or what it is. Very dismissive about it. There's not enough beds for people with eating disorders. Still, if you're getting treatment for eating disorders, you can be sent half the way across the country for a bed, separated from a family, as if that's going to make things better. And then also, you know, we've still, we've got to check. Hope Virgo is brilliant. And she's been working on this campaign for years now running a campaign called dump the scales and it's about we, we're still we're still religiously connected with this idea of eating disorders being about weight um and the number of people that i talk to that feel incredibly invalidated and actually make their illness far worse because they've gone to get tested for an eating disorder they stepped on a scale and then they've had but your bmi is fine you're fine you're actually overweight and then oh what's that going to do to your illness it's horrific so we need a complete upheaval of like how we view treatment of eating disorders let's face it again like we can wear the green ribbon as much as we like at mental health awareness day and and politicians talk about as much as they like but eating disorders are the biggest killer of any mental health disorder and they are the most or one of the most underfunded ones of any of them and so badly treated so i think that's the first thing off the bat and then when we get to schools we schools need a complete culture upheaval we need to completely change cultures in schools I, f I think from my point of view just as it would in a company that starts with training of staff you know I work with companies from in consultancy roles and you know if you're trying to change company culture you start with trying to consult the leaders and make better, better policy and decisions in the company that are going to be beneficial for for the culture and then you train train people train people with mental health first aid you know, my first project when I became a mental health campaigner was to make mental health first aid training part of teacher training. We're still, what, six years later and that's not happened. I think it's absolutely fundamental that every single teacher in this country is trained in mental health first aid and has some sort of knowledge in mental health first aid. And they're not. I've read the entire legal framework for what makes a teacher a teacher. The qualified teacher status legal framework. And it mentions mental health once and it says that the placement school when teachers are doing their training placements, must protect the mental health of their placement trainees. And it doesn't mention it once. To become a teacher, you do not have to know anything about mental health. Um, we know that most mental health disorders are going to arise at some point during your school life, before you're 18. Um, you know, you talk to any teacher and they've, they've seen self-harm, they've seen anorexia, they've seen eating disorders, they've seen people go through trauma, they see people that come to school with trauma, that have gone through awful experiences. They've got no idea. And the, the thing is, you speak to all these teachers and they love to help. They would love to be able to have these conversations and help. And it's all that training adds to a culture change where we have teach schools that understand mental health and put it forward. So I think, yeah, schools and education, I think PSHE needs to be a bigger thing. But then again, I mean, what's difficult about PSHE is you've got thousands of different subjects all wanting a piece of it and you've only got one hour every two weeks and a school can decide exactly how much of each topic to give. I think, you know, these sorts of things need to be taught. But to be honest with you, education needs a complete relook. We're sticking with with a, a topic that's that's not changed in decades if not centuries you look at the news and all these debates about like you have to pass maths and english gcse um you're not allowed to study soft subjects at university we're we're sort of creating a whole society of people that are not creative that are punished for being creative like my brother was he was massively into music and art and the government scrapped music and art so he was yeah. stuck feeling like he wasn't 
as good a person as people that were good at science. So I, I think it's a, we need a complete, complete change of opinion on schools. And I'd love to actually see a sort of trial, and I know there are some schools that are doing it well, but it's a school that really invests in music, art, and soft subjects, teaches all the extras and the periphery stuff that, that really well, I say periphery, periphery from a school point of view, massively important yeah. from an everyday point of view, um, and actually puts less of an onus on the quadratic formula. Yeah, I definitely think that, I guess what we've spoken about today, there's definitely a mold for men to fit and also society in general, but we are erasing those creative elements that really do help with mental health. And I think it's really sad. <laughs> Thank you so much Ben for today it's been absolutely incredible hearing everything you said and I wish we could stay for kind of a whole another day there's so much to unpack but we're so grateful and I'm sure people listening to this will appreciate what you've said so much and be so encouraged and I'm sure there'll be lots of people I hope who do reach out for help or check up on any friends so thank you so much from all of us the Charlie Waller Trust yeah thank you so much it's been a really lovely conversation and yes again thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule this christmas <laughs> it's been a pleasure it's been so nice <laughs> to, to, to take that time out and actually just back to you guys thanks so much for having me on and, and i know people that have really really benefited from all of your work and i'm a massive fan so so uh, you know i'm always happy to support so thanks for having me on and chatting about a really important issue so thank you so much and we hope that everyone has a good Christmas if you're celebrating that. I've been Kyan. I've been Eliza. And this has been Stigma to Strength.